Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we experiment with ideas and activities to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories, including car sales figures for the month of July. We speak to Lewis Willemson in England about how we are modelling traffic to try and shape our cities. We have a couple of reflections on traffic engineering and planning. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith, we take a jovial look at stories, including a Sydney man has his Opal card implanted into his hand to make catching public transport easier. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Australia's motor industry posted its fourth month of record sales for 2017, with July as its third successive month of record gains, according to the latest VFAX figures. Sales of SUVs are up 5.6% year-to-date, with the strongest growth appearing in the business sector and in the small and medium SUV segments. Light Commercial showed a similar gain of 4.8% year-to-date. Toyota had five vehicles in the nation's top 10 bestsellers and led the market with over 19% of total sales. Mazda is in second place with just over 10%, followed by Hyundai, Holden and Ford. The Toyota Hilux was the nation's top-selling vehicle in July, with sales that are 19% higher than last year. The Toyota Corolla was in second place, followed by the Ford Ranger, Mazda 3 and the Toyota Camry. For a long time, it was General Motors as the biggest world car company based on sales. Then came Toyota and briefly Volkswagen. Now the Renault-Nissan alliance is the largest vehicle maker based on figures for the first half of this year. In the first six months of 2017, they sold 5.27 million units. Nissan was their biggest performer with over 2.8 million vehicles. Then came Renault with nearly 1.9 million. Mitsubishi was just under half a million and Infiniti with 125,000 units. The potential sales volumes of Mitsubishi, which is part of the alliance, could improve even if that brand focuses on SUV and commercial vehicles. The only positive comment about the sales of Infiniti vehicles would be to say it was a good opportunity for improvement. Overdrive has reported in the past on Ford's move to be a mobility company, not just a car company. In late 2016, Ford bought the shuttle van startup Chariot. Chariot started in 2014, offering a private shuttle service in the Bay Area of San Francisco. The service is now expanding to New York. In many ways, Chariot is just a bus service. They pick them up at predetermined sites and drop them off as near to their destination as possible. The big point of difference is that you have to book your seat. You can book your seat with an app on your phone. A study from the University of Nebraska's Lincoln's Midwest Roadside Safety Facility has suggested that the height of the Midwestern guardrail system could be increased to improve safety. They have also made recommendations on the installation of guardrails to reduce the detrimental effects on the local environment. Low rail heights increase the propensity of vehicle rollover and override, 
while excessively tall rails promote underride. Further, rail mounting heights and the depth to which posts are embedded may be altered to help roadside terrain. An increased guardrail height may be desirable to accommodate construction tolerances, soil erosion, frost heave and future roadway overlays. A mounting height of 36 inches, about 914 millimetres, was recommended as the maximum guardrail height that would safely contain and redirect small car vehicles. The current height is 31 inches, or about 787 millimetres. 2017 marks the 60th anniversary of the Fiat 500, that diminutive rear-engine four-seater passenger car that helped to put Italy on wheels after the war. And part of the celebrations will see the Goodwood Revival Festival in England have a Fiat 500 display and lively circuit parade of more than 150 examples of these cute Torinese city cars each day. The Goodwood Revival is a three-day festival held each September at Goodwood Circuit since 1998 for the types of road racing cars and motorcycles that would have competed during the circuit's original period of 1948 to 1966. Spectators and participants dress up in the styles of the times as well. On the track, the Fiats will be joined by a handful of other Italian vehicles of the period to resemble the 1950s movie Roman Holiday. In the last half century, one of the biggest changes for planning transport in cities and regional areas has been the use of computer modelling, trying to work out what the future will hold and considering the impact of any number of projects is a critical part of our planning process. Now, computers have become hugely powerful. The amount of data we are accessing is increasing exponentially and the way we present the results is becoming, well, far more entertaining. So where are we at and how are we adapting? to consider things like autonomous cars. One of the keynote speakers at the AITPM National Conference in Melbourne this August is Lewis Willemson, affectionately known throughout the industry as Pilo. He has been working with models for over 40 years and his CV is bulging with examples of planning processes he has been part of around the world and we are very fortunate to have Pilo on the line from England now. Pilo, thanks very much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for calling. Go back to, what, the mid-70s and that uh, modelling was really hitting its stuff, was starting to hit its straps then. How did planners and engineers see modelling as a tool at that stage? Well, there were, in my perspective at least, there were two different levels at which models were being considered. One was in the long-term planning, and there we were using conventional main uh, frame computers and everything was very difficult everything has to be coded by hand and the efforts required a year or two uh, of work before we could say anything about the future at a more local level there were developments in traffic control in particular scat in the case of um, australia scoot in the case of the uk and methodologies to coordinate traffic signals and improve traffic management. And uh, Saturn, in a way, tried to combine these two elements into one. Um, So although at the local level, at the day-to-day level, computers were only used for traffic signal control, suddenly it became possible to do a bit more than that. 
I found actually at that time there was a local sim set where I think was at the very intersection level in Australia or soon after that. But it, it provided an opportunity actually to do feedback. We, I couldn't get one intersection to work based on current data. But what it said was that the standard rates of how much traffic you can fit down a lane was not enough. And the fact in a particular situation, it, the model said that you know, it was working quite well, but it looked like it wasn't. And the reason why it looked like that was that the original data that we'd had around for years was actually out of date. I don't mean data of numbers. I mean data of capacity of lanes. Yeah, that, that, there are many cases like that. In a similar case, I try to adapt transit, which was a very, mm. very popular model at the time for signal coordination to conditions in uh, in a developing country and uh, I couldn't get it to work <laughs> yeah uh, simply because in particular it was the behavior of buses that was very different from the UK mm. and uh, so it was necessary to make a significant adaptation to the platoon dispersion model for buses in order to represent something approximately like the chaos that you could see in many emerging countries at the time. What about governments? Did they embrace the sort of modelling as a brave new world? They did, but for not necessarily for the right reasons. Politicians and decision makers would like to be sure or confident at least that they are making the right choice. They, they, they need backup. They they would like to see somebody else with scientific terminology supporting their decision. They don't perhaps care that much whether the model is correct or incorrect, but they, they really want the, that support from somebody else so that they can blame somebody else as well if things go wrong. Where are we moving to now? I mentioned that uh, there's a whole pile of new things out there in technology. The modelling, what are some of the big differences that we're seeing in our approach to modelling and how they're being used? Well, there is a wide variety of things. I mean, in the last 10, 15 years, we have software developers have made significant strides in terms of micro-simulation. And micro-simulation very often associated with Monte Carlo random number generation in order to represent the variability of behavior, whether it's traffic or human beings. Um, and that has been taken forward with great enthusiasm, particularly in the U.S., in terms of trying to represent a much richer variety of human behavior, um, I refer to activity-based modeling. It's very interesting. I don't think it's very good, but it's very interesting because it's, it's an ambition to understand human being and human behavior much deeper. I, I think it's an ambition that we are very, very far from actually realizing in practice. Well, transport is a derived activity, isn't it? It's because we want to do something and understand that. We did a story the other day that some people don't travel in a particular way because they have claustrophobia. And so I think Transport for London has a map that helps you use public transport if you have claustrophobia. I mean, that's not something we re represent in models, yet it's an indication of how some other factors can have a big play and what ends up happening. Indeed, yeah, and, and there are a multiple set of factors. Um, I like traveling in public transport, for example. I don't like driving in, in urban areas. I like driving in, in, in the rural areas. 
I have been conditioned all my life here in the UK to look for places to live and work, which are well served by public transport. Hmm. That's, um, if you like, I'm captive of public transport in the terminology that we tend to use in, in these cases. Other people are just the opposite. They, they find it um, dangerous, um, unfamiliar. They don't like other people sitting next to them. And um, that influences their own choices. But what I find it even more interesting than those variations, and this is what actually I'm, I'm interested at the moment, is, is how we change our mind. The fact that somebody who perhaps was very keen driver suddenly discovers that traveling in public transport is, is more relaxing, given it's not the frustration of congestion and, and delays at, uh, on the road, and that he can or she can read a book or can play with a phone or can do other things. And um, suddenly they become uh, very keen on using public transport. I'm very interested in this. How is it that we change our mind? Not just in transport. We change our mind in many things. The, the kind of music we like, um, the kind of people we would like to be friends with, and uh, the cities we live. Um, it's very it's fascinating. We're actually looking at that particularly in terms of road safety, where governments have wanted people to change their mind and so they've lectured them to do it rather than necessarily really understanding what people's real motivations are and that gets back to what are we modeling and and how do we know about it is that part of that the more availability of a much wider base for data now uh, uh, is that helping the modeling process well Yes and no. Um, I think one of the weak elements of activity-based modeling or any attempt to simulate in a high level of granularity or detail human behavior is that usually we don't have a lot of data. We usually have a 1% sample, a 2% sample of the population on a particular week, on a particular year. And we extrapolate from that and assume that everybody else behave similarly Obviously, we do some market segmentation and we distinguish different type of people. But the different type of people we surveyed on a particular week in 2016, we, we think to believe that they will have the same values, the same objectives, the same type of behavior in 2035. PLO, that is absolutely lovely. I look forward to meeting you when you're out here. There is much to develop there, which is, I think, a great richness of our humanity and the way we do things. And it's not just a mathematical cute model out of a computer. I, I love your thoughts and I thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much to you. And uh, that is, as uh, formal name is, of course, uh, Lewis uh, Williamson, but of course known in the industry as Pilo. And he is coming to Australia and he is talking about modelling. But I think, as you can hear, it's in a very broad context and one that leads to real solutions and real understandings, both amongst planners, but also decision makers and other stakeholders. You're listening to Overdrive. As a step towards autonomous vehicles, adaptive cruise controls allows cars to change their speed according to the vehicle in front of them. Initially, this would just reduce the power to the engine when a car approached the back of another on an open highway. 
This has now progressed to the point where some cars will apply the brakes if necessary and vehicles can drive through even city conditions without the driver having to touch the brake or accelerator, as long as they are not the first car approaching a red light at traffic signals. Now, Oregon-based Connected Vehicle Data Analytics Company, Connected Signals, has announced the public release of the Digital Intersection Stop Line Data. This gives the precise location at which drivers are expected to stop when encountering red lights. The company has also developed a patent-pending Visual Traffic Signal Detection System that is capable of finding traffic lights and determining the status as you approach in your particular direction. And its enlightened smartphone traffic signal countdown application is currently being piloted in Oregon in partnership with BMW. You're listening to Overdrive. Wendover Productions say that they are all about explaining how our world works. They produce videos on a wide range of subjects from travel to economics to geography to marketing and more. They say that every video will leave you with a little better understanding of our world. One of their videos is titled How to Fix Traffic Forever, an optimistic title. The 11 minute long video with an ad at the front and at the end, which is fair enough, covers five subjects from derived demand to shared zones. There are some good points about not building roads to reduce congestion, that lane metering has proved to be successful, citing one situation, and shared zones are being widely adopted. My only concern is that it appears to make all-encompassing conclusions, such as roundabouts are better than other intersections. I would at least add, in many cases, but not all. Now, in the modern media, you cannot go through the equivalent of a four-year course to cover all the details. But how should we participate in this type and style of communication? The information they present is, to my mind, simplistic, but making it over long and complex is not the answer. Perhaps one 10-minute video on the good and bad points of roundabouts and some of the features of the latest designs might be a good start for community groups, schools and tertiary students in planning and engineering subjects. We need to progress our approach and our involvement. I have included the Wendover video after this presentation for reference. This is Overdrive across Australia. And we come to the end of the program and once again looking at the more unusual stories I am very thankfully joined by Brian Smith. G'day Brian. G'day David. But wearable computing in a way. Uh, you've got a story along those lines? Yes, well of course in New South Wales we've got uh, our new Opal cards, our contactless smart card ticket. A uh, very handy thing, a very handy thing indeed. Well, one uh, Sydney person, he's a science, ex-science uh, party member, he has uh, had that the Opal Cards chip implanted into his hand in order that he can demonstrate wearable tech in a very real way. So he swipes his hand across the Opal Card reader He's an unusual fellow. His, his name is Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. 
And that's his actual name. Uh, the story goes that he changed his name as a bit of a bet. He was known as Disco Stew, apparently, at his workplace. And people basically pooled a whole bunch of money to get him to change his name to a ridiculous name, which he did. At what? As opposed to Disco Stew? Disco Stew was his nickname. Oh, okay. He became oh. Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. So he's a, he's a guy very interested in science and biohacking. So he, he cut up his Opal card. He took the tiny near-field communications chip that allows the contactless data transfer. He had it encased in a special plastic. It's only 10 millimetres by 6 millimetres long, and then he had it implanted in the side of his hand. Now, interestingly, he had it in his left hand, which probably is problematic when he gets to sort of Town Hall or Wynyard and realises the uh, Opal Card reader is on the right-hand side, not the left-hand side. But he used it. Now, interestingly, once this story came out, the New South Wales government pointed out that tampering with the Opal Card breached its sort of regulations and that they could cancel his card. And they did cancel his card, but they cancelled his registered card, which was his normal sort of standard Opal card. Cleverly, the one that he had implanted was not registered, so they couldn't... They couldn't cancel oh, it on okay. So he's got another two implants in his hand and arm, including one that he keeps his documents on. So he's trying to demonstrate, you know, that these implants could well be more widely used in the future. Uh, and they could help people, uh, you know, elderly people or people who find it difficult to communicate. It could be a good way of uh, understanding someone's identity. But, uh, David, would you, I guess, have your public transport ticket implanted in your body is there a a chance that you could accidentally scan yourself on and off a train as it drives past or a bus i would do it as a person who went to the bus stop the other day and found that i didn't have my card in my pocket the normal card i keep in my i used to keep in my phone it fell out of there the phone jacket isn't perfect in holding it i lost it it became a pain so i keep it in my wallet but i have to get my wallet out every time <laughs> and so i leave it in my pocket while i'm on the train which means that i forget about it when i get home and it can go through the wash the whole thing of having it there no matter what appeals to me enormously the target market and where would you have it implanted, do you think? Given that this guy's name is Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow, I had a terrible vision about where it might just be implanted. But putting all that aside, he's not that weird looking. He doesn't have any earrings or huge, you know, those huge big holes in his ears that you might expect from someone that embraced a name like that. So yes. um, oh, the hand, I think, is an obvious thing. But mm. the thing about your information he's got another thing in there with your information is that mean that someone with a scanner can just come along and download your emails well yes potentially i mean where's the security and I, I imagine he being an expert in this sort of stuff would have all this sort of stuff covered but yes yeah, certainly it could make muggings very very bloody though couldn't it too <laughs> amazing <laughs> Well, as I say, look, I saw wearable computing as being an absolute pain. I sort of had a vision when it was first talked about of a laptop hanging around your neck and having to use it. Or the other side of it is a watch like Dick Tracy, where the screen is just too small. I always thought that this idea of the Apple Watch and that was not really workable because it's just got such a small screen. When you read the cartoon, Dick Tracy looked at his watch, so the next panel of the cartoon was always a full panel showing the screen. 
Yes. But enlarged so that you could see it. Yes. So, but you and I would not be able to see that. So I never had the vision to see how it works. But this whole miniaturization, I think, is wonderful. Well, potentially wonderful. Does that mean someone might hack off my arm in order to get through the train station? <laughs> they could, David. Perhaps not. Let's not turn it into something ghoulish. Brian, do you have any superstitions when you drive? Any rituals? Do you like to wear red socks or odd socks to feel safer? Do you have a St. Christopher medal in your car? Perhaps I think not. A plastic Jesus on the... Uh, on the, on the <laughs> thing. But, but by the way, St. Christopher, it turns out, is not the patron saint of travel. Apparently that was a clerical error. <laughs> Okay, so there's this lady gets on the China Southern Airlines flight CZ380 from Shanghai to Guangzhou, and she had nine coins which she threw into the plane's jet engine for good luck. (laughs) I don't believe she's a mechanical engineer. I could be wrong. (laughs) This didn't end well, I, I trust. She'd thrown two coins to pray for safety and been informed by a neighbour that she believes in Buddhism. I'm not sure Buddhism, the great Buddha, ever envisaged a Rolls-Royce engine on the side of a plane and how we might go towards that in some way that gives us a meditation to make things safer. She might have well have just thrown a, a seagull in there and saved a lot of <laughs> mucking around, wouldn't she? Certainly didn't result in a smoother, uh, safer journey, did it? Because immediately everyone was deplaned and they had to spend hours inspecting the engine and removing the coins. She threw, I think, was it nine coins? Hmm. She got one of them in the engine, which meant they had to you know, actually pull a a coin out of the engine. Of course, if no one had noticed and reported this, the engine could well have been destroyed or badly damaged and potentially delaying people a whole lot further. But uh, in the end, it didn't give her a smooth journey. It gave her quite a a reasonably large fine, I suspect, and uh, a lot of trouble for all her passengers, her fellow passengers. She made it with only one out of nine. Clearly, she's unlucky. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Okay. Next stop, the, the table's at Macau. <laughs> Doesn't she know the table always wins? The coins were worth about 1.71, uh, 35 cents in the scheme of things. And it did, as I say, delay the plane significantly about five hours. Brian, it's always good to talk to you. I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Brian Smith are talking some unusual quirky stories to do with motoring and transport and planes and automobiles and all that sort of stuff. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.